Well, good morning again. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time here, I just want to say thank you for joining us. We're in part four of a series called David, but at any point throughout the message, you have a question, head out to our website. You can ask questions live on there and someone will get to you, or you can stop by Journey Central. That's the big kind of rack in the back with all of our stuff on it. Head back there and one of our volunteers would be happy, happy to help you and happy to give you a gift just for being here. We're just glad that you decided to join us this morning. So as I said, we're in part four of the series called David. Last week, uh, Paul filled in for me. I was down visiting some family, uh, and he kind of let, let, continued our discussion through David. This morning, we're going to take a really interesting look at the life of David. We're going to skip through about 50 to 60 years of history pretty quickly through it. So I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, read the story when you get home, because it is completely captivating. If you don't, we'll give you one. Just stop by that table in the back. We'd be happy to give you one for free. <clears throat> but this morning, we're going to continue our talk on the life of David and how it impacts us. So here's how I want to start. <clears throat> the thing that I think is probably the greatest level uh, or greatest measure maybe of an individual's maturity and maybe the greatest measure of, of your maturity or my maturity, maturity is how we handle our influence, how we handle our authority, maybe even how we handle our power. Or, or in other words, how we respond when, when it becomes like <clears throat> completely clear to us that we're the most powerful person in the room that we're the most powerful, maybe we have the most authority, maybe we've been given the keys to something or we have our own business. When we realize that we're the most kind of authoritative, powerful, influential person in the room, what we do in that moment, what we do with that power, how we kind of leverage that authority and that influence says more about us than almost anything else we would do. It says more about our character. It says more about who we are and the people that we want to become. But at any moment, at any time, when it dawns on us, when all eyes are on us, when all eyes are kind of looking to us for the answer, looking to us to lead, looking for us for direction, in that moment, the decisions we make will influence not just our lives, but the lives of the people looking to us. And I don't know about you, but I find it incredibly inspiring when we look out and you read those stories of these incredible men that have been given kind of the keys to the kingdom. They've been given the crown. They've been given the power. They've been given the authority. And when they use that, when they leverage it for the sake of the people that are with them or that are around them or that are following them, those are like the most inspiring stories ever. I just read a documentary uh, about George Washington and his life. And, and what a great example of a man who was kind of given the keys to a kingdom. He fought and he won the war and then the, 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 the uh, armies kind of came, the people came to him and said, we want you to kind of be our king. I know we call it a president, but be our president forever. And this man, given the keys to the kingdom with all authority, with all power, I mean, every eye looking at him said, absolutely not. I've seen what happens when a man gets too much power. I'll serve once, but then I'm going to step down. I mean, those are the stories that kind of inspire us, that make us want to follow these kinds of people. And on the flip side, I don't know of anything more disturbing, and maybe you've been in this position, where people kind of live their lives and, and, and they use that power, they use that authority, they use that influence for their advantage, they, use, they leverage it for their sake, and almost to the neglect of the people that follow them. There's something just kind of disturbing and, and, and off-putting and hard about that. You see, my theory is this, that none of us really know what we're going to do in those situations until we're actually handed the keys, until someone hands us the power no one really knows. We'd like to say, I'd, I'd be like George Washington. I'd be the guy that does the right thing, that makes the right decision. But no one really knows until someone comes and hands you the keys or hands you the authority or, like in David's case, puts the crown on your head. 
You see, now we're going to pick up with the story with David. He's in middle school. He's about 13 or 14 years old. And this man named Samuel, you've heard about him. The whole story of David is actually in the book of First and Second Samuel. This man Samuel, he was kind of the, the, the second authority. There was King Saul and under King Saul, there was this prophet Samuel. Samuel shows up at David's house to David's father, Jesse. He says, hey, Jesse, I'm on this, 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 this kind of secret mission. I, I want to invite your whole family to come together, and, and we're going to perform th- this little sacrifice. And we'll find out later the reason it was a secret mission was because Samuel was there to anoint the next king of Israel. And the reason he had to keep it secret was because Israel already had a what? A king. Israel already had a king. And unless Samuel felt like losing his head, he had to keep things a little secret. So he was on this secret mission to anoint this, this person as a king, and he was told from God that it would be in the house of Jesse. So he calls Jesse, says, get all your kids together. We're going to perform this special ceremony, this sacrifice, and I want all of your family together. So he does. Jesse calls all of his family together. And Samuel is about to perform the sacrifice. And he's kind of got this, this idea that, that as the, the family of Jesse, as the sons begin to walk in, he's just going to kind of get this, like, this God nod. Right? This nod from God that, that that's the one. That's the person. That's the next thing. Almost like, like that lightning bolt moment. He's the one. The story picks up here in 1 Samuel. When they arrived, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, this is, this is the oldest. This is Jesse's first. And he's thinking, surely this is the next king. Like, look at him. He's the firstborn. He's tall. He's handsome. He's strapping. He says, surely the Lord's anointed is before the Lord. Thinking, this is easy. Done. I can go home. We can we have to do the sacrifice. This is it. This is the king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance. Which for us, is, it's really difficult to do, isn't it? When we, when we meet someone, it's not like you know their IQ. You don't know their history or their background. We make a lot of, of kind of judgment calls based on someone's appearance. And it was that way even in ancient times. It, it, they kind of ascribed authority. They kind of ascribed influence and power based on how good someone looked. And we're going to learn something really interesting about the Lord coming up. He says, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Why? Why did God reject him? The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Or, or in other words, it's what's inside a man that makes up a man. So ladies, it's what's inside a man, not his appearance that makes up a man. And men, it's what's inside a woman. So don't judge. And you know what? You guys are hopeless. We'll just keep moving on. It's a lesson to be learned. <clears throat> the story goes on. Six sons later, so that's the first son. Six more sons come by. All of them come into Samuel. Samuel's thinking, this could be the one, this could be the one. Six sons go by and, and no king. No like, aha, no God nod, no moment. So he's kind of confused and a little frustrated. And you can imagine how awkward this scenario is going to play out. He kind of leans over to Jesse and he's like, hey, Jesse, is this all the kids you have? And, you know, if you're Jesse, you're thinking, dude, that's seven kids. Like, that's not enough. Right? It's a little bit awkward. Like, I told you to bring all your kids. Maybe I got something wrong. God said someone was going to be here and I'd have to anoint him. But, but like, is this it? And then Jesse kind of like, oh, yeah. No, no, this isn't it. There, there's one more, he says. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said to him, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. And when David shows up, this little shepherd boy, kind of dirty, kind of smelly. I mean, he's out with the sheep in the fields. He's young. He's small. When David shows up, he gets the God nod. That's it. I don't know, it's, I don't know how God told him. It wasn't like, like he hit him with a lightning bolt like people think that's going to happen. But Samuel knew immediately, and the Lord said this, Rise and anoint him. This is the, is the one. 
And then this strange thing happens. David comes forward. Jesse anoints him with oil. They do their little this ceremony, this sacrifice. And then Samuel just kind of packs up and walks away. And the family's just kind of sitting there looking at each other, wondering, like, what just happened? They weren't told anything. There was no indication that Samuel told David or Jesse or anyone that he was there to anoint the next king of Israel. He just poured some oil on this kid's head, performed a sacrifice, and left. And everyone's wondering, what now? What next? For David's little 13 or 14-year-old boy, about 18 months to two years later is when he faces Goliath. We learned that in week one, where he faces this giant Goliath and kills him and is just kind of propelled into instant stardom. He becomes an instant sensation to the nation. And for, and for about seven years, the next seven years, things are going good for David, right? The nation loves him. King Saul loves him. King Saul sends him on these missions and he just comes back successful and successful. There is just this, this kind of blessing around David and everything's going great. But as we heard about in the, our first week, things begin to shift for, for King Saul. He's like a little bit of an insecure king, and he gets angry. He gets jealous, and he begins to, to, to kind of hunt down David. He begins to, to get angry with David, and he actually puts a bounty on David's head to kill him. And for the next eight years, David is on the run. For the next eight years, David lives as a fugitive in the land that he defended, in the land that he protected, in the land that he loved. And he and his kind of band of merry men, they're just kind of wandering the hillsides, trying to avoid the Philistines, the army that David destroyed, and trying to avoid King Saul and his men because King Saul's out to kill him. And through this time, David learns these incredible lessons. And one of them in particular that we're going to see modeled throughout this time in the wilderness and throughout David's life as he grows older is this, that it's not about me. It's not about me. When it, comes to, when it comes to my position or my situation, what I feel like God spoke to me or the promise of God, it's not about me. It's God's will. It's God's way in God's time. It's God's will in God's way in God's time. And then there's two kind of interesting stories that indicate David learning this lesson. The first one is a really kind of popular story. You probably heard this if you grew up in church at all. You heard this, this first story where David and his men, they're kind of hiding in the cave in the hillsides, avoiding King Saul. And King Saul and his men are kind of wandering around looking for David. And, and King Saul has, has to go to the bathroom. It's the only time in the scriptures that I can tell where they actually refer to someone going to the bathroom. So if you're a middle school teacher, this is gold for you. You'll, your kids will love this. King Saul has to go to the bathroom and he's wandering around the hillside and he says to his men, stop, I, I got to go, you know, use whatever you use. He gets off his donkey and he climbs up the hill into this cave and and it's sure enough, as like fate would have it, it's the cave David's hiding in. Now, these aren't like small caves we think of as kids. These are big caverns. David and his men are hiding in the back, and their eyes have adjusted to the light, but Saul's hasn't. He goes like past the mouth of the cave so his men can't see him do his business, and then he begins to do his business. And David and his men are standing there, and they begin to creep up on King Saul. And in this moment, David has this, this almost like immediate temptation to do something that my guess is he would have regretted the rest of his life. David begins to creep up on King Saul and his men. They kind of look at David. And this isn't how they said this, so I'm going to say it. But you, you get the, the kind of emotion from this. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, David? The Lord has delivered your enemy right into your hands. Like, could this get any better? And this is what they said. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of. Because for years, David had been telling his men, hey, guys, stick with me. I know it's bad. I know the Philistines want to kill us and the king of our nation is out to hunt us. But, but God promised something to me. He said, someday something good is going to come my way. And if you stick with me, it's going to go better for you. You'll get this reward. J just stick with me, guys. Don't run away yet. So for years, they've been holding on to this promise from David. And sure enough, there's King Saul with no weapon, no soldiers around him, standing there at the, at the mouth of the cave. This is the day the Lord spoke of. 
when he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for, your to, for you to deal with as you wish. And David almost falls for it. David almost falls into the temptation. I mean, if you're kind of remembering the story, he creeps up on King Saul and he's thinking, I could, I could slit his throat. No one would know. I'd walk out to the mouth of the cave and everyone would see. And then all of Saul's army, they would immediately capitulate and make me king because they would know I'm the king. I was the general. I fought the battles. I killed Goliath. They would, I could do it in an instant and get what God promised me. But David says no. He looks at his men and he says, no, I, I, I've, I've learned this lesson. I am not going to take my, my destiny into my own hands. I'm, I'm not going to do this. This is wrong. I won't touch the Lord's anointed. Saul finishes his business. He goes and he leaves the cave and gets on his donkey. David then kind of creeps out of the cave. And you, you can tell he's got a little bit of a mischievous side to him. He kind of creeps his head out. And I know he doesn't say this, but he's kind of getting Saul's attention. Like, hey, you who Saul, look who's been here the whole time. He gets to the mouth of the cave and, and he's looking out, out over all of Saul's army and David says this, may the Lord judge between you and me. I'm not gonna judge you. I'm not gonna judge anything, Saul, but let the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hands, they will not touch you. My hands are gonna remain clean, King Saul. Although everyone behind me knows Everyone behind me and even in front of me knows that I have the right to defend myself and I had the right to take your life. I didn't do it. That's a story we all know. That's the famous one. There's another story that's not as popular and you probably haven't heard of it. But there's another story a few years later. The same kind of wilderness situation. David's wandering around the desert. He's wandering around avoiding King Saul, avoiding other enemies. This has been going on for about seven or eight years. King Saul and his armies are in the, the desert of Ziph. This is kind of a... a a barren wasteland. There's not a lot of hills or mountains. It's just kind of like rolling plains. He's in this, um, in the desert of Ziph, and David has sent out kind of spies to tell him where King Saul is, where the armies is, so David knows how to avoid Saul's army. Well, the, the news comes back to David that Saul is in this, this desert of Ziph, and it's kind of wide open. So David, with this little bit of a mischievous side, he kind of said, well, let, let's, go, let's go have a look, guys. So he takes his men and they kind of climb up along one of those hills and they're looking now at Saul's army and they're kind of encamped together. And Saul, just like any king would have, he kind of puts his tent in the middle and there's 3,000 of his army surrounding him. He's laying on the ground with a spear next to his head because that's what you did. You're always ready for a fight. David looks out over this army. And again, you can imagine his men are thinking, here it is, David. Like, look at what God has done. Look at the army that's before us. We can attack them while they sleep. David's like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to head down there. He's, but he kind of leans over to his friend Abishai, and he says, hey, hey, Abishai, I've got a really bad idea, and I want to know if you'll come with me and, and do this really like, kind of bad idea with me. And Abishai's like, yeah, sure. Here's where the story picks up. So David and Abishai, they went to the army by night. They kind of creep into the camp at night. And there was Saul lying asleep inside of his camp with his spear stuck in the ground next to his head. They sneak in past these 3,000 soldiers. They find King Saul. They're standing over the king who's asleep with a spear right next to his head. I mean, like, you got to be thinking, could it have been any more gift-wrapped? No one knows. The king's bodyguard, Abner, is laying right there. No one's awake. All i got to do is pick up the spear, and it's done. They're standing over King Saul and Abishai. <clears throat> sorry, Abner, rather, and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, and I'm sure it was much more of a whisper because they are surrounded by 3,000 men. So he kind of whispers in David's ear, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. 
Now, David, I know we missed this opportunity a few years ago when Saul was in the cave. And, and I know you have this kind of like weird religious um, like, uh, observation or connection that you feel like you can't touch the, the, the Lord's in order. You can't touch King Saul because he's the king. But David, God hasn't told me that. Like, I can do this. We're right here. Let me kill him. I, I, won't, I won't even like mangle his body. Uh, Abishai says this to him. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. Or in other words, I'm not going to mangle him. I'll just, I'll pick up the spear. We'll go right down through his heart, David, and it'll be over. And you'll get what's been promised to you. You'll be the king that you've been, like everyone knows you should be. It'll be done. And, And the last thing Saul will see when he opens his eyes is your face as he leaves this life. And you claim what's rightly been given to you. David, I can do it in an instant and no one would know. David says, no, we're not going to do it. I am not going to take into my hands my destiny because it's God's timing and God's way. It's God's will and God's way and in God's timing. So David says, I I won't kill him, but let's have a little fun. He said, you grab the spear, I'll grab the water jug, and let's head out. So they head out and they climb back up the mountainside and they're, they're kind of standing on the hill that's overlooking this camp. The sun begins to rise behind David. So when the soldiers wake up, all they see is this kind of like silhouette of a man up on the mountain and David begins to yell out, begins to kind of taunt their army. Hey, Abner, you know, you, the king's bodyguard, the guy who was supposed to protect the king, you're a horrible bodyguard. Are you missing anything? And they're in a panic. They kind of recognize David's voice, and now they're worried, like he's going to attack us. They look around. The spear's gone. Saul's water jug's gone. David holds them both up and says, you're a horrible excuse for a bodyguard, and you deserve to die. But I haven't touched you. And then David and his men kind of melt off into the desert, and they can't be found again. He says, I refuse to do this. I refuse to lay my hand on the king. David says to Abishai, don't destroy him, for who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. David refused to replace what God had put in place. He refused to replace what God had put there because after all, it's God's will and God's way and God's time. Well, eventually, and I'm skipping a lot of history here, eventually, King Saul and his son Jonathan, David's best friend, they, they're killed by the Philistines. They're murdered by the Philistines. These are, are the two people, the two obstacles that are in the way of David becoming king of the nation of Israel. They're killed by the Philistines. And David mourns their loss. I mean, imagine that. David is like primed to become king. And the two men that are standing in his way, instead of throwing a party when they die, he mourns their loss. He grieves for them. And in this this moment of of confusion, uh, Israel had 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, the tribe that David was from. They make David their king. David becomes king of the tribe of Judah. But this interesting thing happens. Uh, this man named Ishbosheth, he kind of comes to the forefront. He was one of Saul's other sons. He comes to the forefront. He says, No, no, I'm king of Israel. And the other 11 tribes side with Ishbosheth. And for the next seven years, there's this kind of war, this internal civil war struggle in the nation of Israel between the house of David and the house of King Saul. And the whole time this is happening, everyone's kind of looking at David saying, David, why don't you take it? It's yours. You're the king. Everyone knows you're the king. You're the greatest general. You were the greatest bodyguard. You killed the giant. David, it's yours. Why aren't you taking what has been promised to you? Why didn't you seize your destiny when you had the chance? A few years go by, and two brothers decide to take matters into their own hands. One afternoon, Ishbosheth is sleeping in his house in his bed taking a nap. And these two brothers, they kind of creep in. 
And they're thinking, if David won't do what David should do, we're going to do it for him. They creep into his room, and they kill him, and they cut off Ishbosheth's head. And they begin to run back to David, thinking, we did it. We're going to get a reward. We removed the last obstacle. Now David can be king over the entire nation of Israel. We just removed the obstacles for David. They run back almost proudful, telling David this. <clears throat> Excuse me. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. And there's a, little, there's a little bit of a background on beheadings. I know that sounds kind of gross, but in, in this day, there was like a lot of beheadings. There's a lot of beheadings in the Old Testament. There's a lot of beheadings in ancient times, and here's why. And you can use this later on. It's because they had no iPhones. It's, it's the truth. No one had a camera. There was no way to actually report that someone was dead unless you actually had their head. Right? The only way to prove that you killed someone, the only way to prove that someone was dead is if you had their head. So these two guys, they sneak into the, the house, they kill Ishbosheth, they come back with a head, they give it to David, and David's reaction isn't exactly what they kind of thought it would be. David looks at these two brothers who just re like removed Ishbosheth, th this obstacle, if you would, that was keeping David from becoming king, and David looks at the brothers and says this, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, as surely as the Lord, who has kept me in his hands, who has kept me free from harm, all of these years when I was running, all of those years in the wilderness, as surely as the Lord lives, who have kept me out of trouble, the Lord who didn't ask you for your help, but you decided to get involved anyway. When someone told me that Saul is dead, and they thought they were bringing me good news, I seized him and I put him to death. That was their reward for the, good, for the news they brought me. And now you can imagine, these two brothers, the smile kind of like goes off their face. They're not thinking things are going to work out as well as they thought. There's a little bit of nervousness setting in. Like, I thought David was going to be happy. He, he doesn't seem really happy about this. David says, how much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own home, in his own bed? Now everyone's wondering, you, can you really call Ishbosheth innocent? Like, he started this revolt. He, he, he jumped in and took your kingship when it was yours. He, I mean, he led this, this kind of civil war against you for seven years. How is he innocent, David? You see, David didn't see it that way because David knew it was God's will and God's way and God's timing. So David gave an order to his men and they killed the two brothers and they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it, which was a sign of honor, with Abner at his tomb in Hebron. Well, after Ishbosheth was dead, after his demise, the other 11 tribes, the tribes that had kind of chosen to go against David, they kind of come back to David. And you can imagine, there's a little bit of nervousness with them. Like, we chose to go against David seven years ago, and, and now here we are coming back to this man, and, and we've got to kind of win him over. These tribes come back to him <clears throat> after being a fugitive for seven years, after having the civil war with Ishbosheth for another seven years, about 15 years in total. These men come back to him. All the tribes of Israel, the text tells us, not, not just Judah, all the other tribes came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel in the military campaigns. They're basically, hey, David, we knew it was you all along, man. I mean, you were the one who led the campaigns. You killed the giant. You were like the best warrior. We knew it was you all along, David. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people and you will become their ruler. Like this was no mystery. 
Everyone knew David was, was destined to be king. Everyone knew that he had it in him. Everyone knew that eventually, somehow, David would be king over this. And now it's his time. Now it's his opportunity. These men are coming to him, ready to give him the keys to the kingdom, put the crown on his head, give him all authority and all power. But here's the interesting thing. Before they even give him any of that, he still has all that already. He still has all the influence. He's holding all the cards. He has the power. They're coming to him, trying to get him convinced to be the king. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, in this moment, when David realizes that it's me, that I'm the man, that I'm going to get the crown, I'm going to have the keys to the kingdom, that I can do what I want, I can enact vengeance on these 11 tribes who didn't side with me seven years ago. I get to do whatever. My word is going to be law. Whatever I say, people are going to do. In this moment, it's one of those kind of make or break moments for David. It's one of those moments that reflect the kind of guy David is, the kind of guy he wants to be, the kind of guy he has become, the kind of guy that learned so much through those 15 years in that wilderness kind of section of David's life. Something significant happens. Think about this for a moment. They're about to make him the most powerful man in the land. And whatever he says he can do because his word will be law. This is what David does. When all the kings, or sorry, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them. The king made a covenant with them. And covenant in this one, it's kind of like a contract. It's kind of David's way of saying, hey, I'll do this if you do this. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. David's making this arrangement to do something for the people. He didn't have to do that. He was going to be king. He could say, here's what's going to happen. You're all going to give me all your lands, all your sheep, your kids, your money. I'm the king. You give it to me. Instead, David, in this moment when he realizes I am the most powerful person in this nation, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this for you. Would you do this for me? I'll do this for you, but would you do this for me? And he makes a covenant with these men. Why? The last three words of this text, they really kind of reveal it all. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. In this moment, when David realized, I have the power, I have the authority, and I have the influence. In this moment, David's character shined through because David realized, I may be a king, but I am not the king. And I will submit myself to God's law, which meant as a king, he was submitting himself to the people that he was there to rule. David's character shined through. What David learned in the wilderness shined through. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. Now next week, we're going to pick the story up there, and we'll, we'll follow that story through to the end of David's life. Don't miss next week. It's going to be really good. But here's what I don't want you to miss. David waited, and he waited, and he waited. He was 13 or 14 years old when he knew God had something significant for his life. And for 15 years, he kind of waited and wandered, and it wasn't an easy 15 years. He was a fugitive. He was on the run for his life. Enemies were all around him, ready to, to close in on him. Yet he waited, because David knew, it's not my way. It's God's will and God's way in God's timing. I can't, and I'm sorry from that time when he's 22 and he did that horrible thing like we talked about. David learned this, this lesson that all of us need to learn is that leadership is stewardship and kings are accountable. 
And while this is like an incredibly inspiring story about David making the hard call for the sake of the other people, and it is incredibly inspiring, it's more than just inspiration. Because as a Christ follower, as a Christian, this kind of greatness, it's required from us. You see, if you're not a Christ follower, you're not a Christian, or this is your first time in church, and you're just kind of here to, to get a cup of coffee and a good donut, and you hear this, and it's inspiring, and that's awesome. But if you call Jesus your Messiah, if, you're, if you kind of submitted yourself to him, this kind of inspiration isn't just something that we look up to. It's inspiration that's required from us. It's inspiration that we are required to do. And this is how we know about a thousand years later, and I know it's hard for us to imagine a thousand years because some of us are only like 20 years old. About a thousand years later, 20 miles north of Hebron in the city of Jerusalem, David's most famous descendant, Jesus, models this kind of decision, models this kind of submission, models this kind of influence, but he puts a little twist on it. John, you guys have heard of John. John was the, the beloved. He was kind of Jesus' close friend. He was there. And he records this incredible story about Jesus and how Jesus modeled this kind of leadership, how Jesus modeled this kind of influence. And I'm sure later on, John would kind of interview Jesus and, and ask about all the intricate details of what happened. But here's what we know. Here's what John says. It was just before the Passover festival. And the Passover is kind of this big deal in this Jewish culture, and it's still a big deal for, for some Jewish cultures today where they celebrate this kind of escape where God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. They throw this big feast, this big meal. Jesus and all his disciples are gathered together in what they call the upper room. It's a special place for a special meal. And at that moment, sitting with his disciples, something happens. John says that Jesus knew in this moment that the hour had come for, to leave this world and to go with the Father. Jesus knew that in just a few hours, he would be arrested, he would be wrongly tried, and he'd be crucified. And, and in this moment where he gets this, almost, this clarity that something significant is about to happen, that, that he's about to be departed, that this is his last Passover with his disciples, where, when something this kind of big kind of just kind of goes off in his mind. I don't know how it happened. I know Jesus is God, but it's almost like he had this revelation that he didn't have before, that it's about to end, that things are about to come to an end. And very much like David, this is so fascinating. Very much like David, Jesus had been anointed to be God. He'd been anointed to be the Messiah. And the very people who were supposed to identify the Messiah when they came, they chased Jesus around the countryside for three years, making accusations against him. These are the people that were supposed to identify him, are going to be the people that wrongly accuse him, that arrest him, and that have him crucified. The very same way God's anointed has to wait and it's not an easy wait. It's a hard wait. Jesus is waiting, and this moment comes upon him. John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had put, and I want us to read this next phrase together, that the Father had put all things. Jesus knew that the Father had put, say it again. If you're at home and you're watching this later, I want you to say it with us. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things, everything, every person, every army, every nation, every rock, every tree, everything that you could see, that you could touch, that you could smell, everything was put under his authority. I mean, imagine that moment. Jesus is sitting there and he has this, this thought, this revelation. God has put everything underneath me. I have power and authority over everything and everyone. I mean, this is that moment where this incredible man realizes I am God. I am the son of God, and everyone here has been put under my authority. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And in this moment, this kind of ideal moment when he realizes I'm the most important person in the room, I am the most powerful, most influential, most authoritative person in the room, what does Jesus do? John tells us he gets up. Here's the question for you. What do you do? What do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when you're king and you realize that you have all authority and all power and all influence? What did Jesus do? The text tells us he gets up from the meal and he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And the disciples sitting in the room, you have to imagine the emotion. They're sitting in this room having dinner and they see this man, this powerful man, get up And they know what he's about to do. As a matter of fact, Peter steps up and he's like, no, 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 Jesus. You are not going to do what I think you're about to do. I'm not, I mean, we have servants. We have slaves for this. You are not going to wash my feet. You're my teacher. You're my rabbi. You're the son of God. You're the most powerful person to ever walk the earth. You are not about to do what I think you're about to do, Jesus. Besides that, I've seen what your hands can do. I watched as you healed people. I watched as a dead person came back to life when you put your hand on him. Jesus. Don't do this. And the tension in the room builds, and it's kind of thick, and everyone's uncomfortable, and no one wants to say anything. And Jesus just kind of smiles, and he gets down on his knees. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around his waist. And afterward, he stood up, and he took the towel off, and he put on his priestly robe again, the robe that signified that he is the rabbi, that he is the teacher, that he has the power and the authority, and he sits at the table. And you can just imagine the, the emotion and the drama in this moment. No one's saying a thing. No one needs to say a thing. Because in that moment, Jesus preached the most dynamic message he would ever preach to him without ever saying a word. They knew what was done. They knew what he was asking him to do. Jesus didn't have to say anything. But he did say something. And I think he said it for your sake. And I think he said it for my sake. Jesus says this. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. If I'm not too good to wash your feet, you're not too good to wash each other's feet. At that moment, guys, when you realize that you have the power, that you have the authority, at that moment when you realize when I leave here that you're it, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look for more feet to wash. I want you to look for more feet to wash because perhaps the greatest indicator of our maturity is how we handle our authority, our power, and our influence. Perhaps more than anything else, more than any other situation, The way to tell someone's character and someone's greatness is how they leverage their power and their authority and their influence for the sake of someone else. Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God, said, if I'm not too good to wash your feet, then you're not too good to wash someone else's. How do you respond when it dawns on you that you're the most powerful person in the room? Maybe it's the boardroom. Maybe it's the locker room. Maybe it's the classroom. Maybe it's at home in your living room. To some degree, we've all kind of been handed the keys, haven't we? Whether we're running a business or we're a manager or a schedule or, 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 you know, we're just at home and we're the parents or you're in school and you're the leader or you're the captain of a team. 
to some degree, we've all been given some level of influence and authority. What do you do with that? Is it leveraged for your sake? Jesus says, in that moment when you realize, I want you to look for more feet to wash. Don't use it for your sake. Use it for the sake of those around you. You see, when you're the most powerful person in the room, the best thing you could do is leverage your power for the benefit of the other people in the room. That's what Jesus modeled. That's what David modeled. And it has the ability to change the world, doesn't it? When you're the most powerful person in a relationship, when you're the most powerful person at work, when you're the most powerful person at home, leverage that power for, for the benefit of the other people involved. That's the lesson David learned in the desert. That's the lesson Jesus is trying to teach us. And if you're a Christian, that is required of you. And it's what's required of me. Because after all, I mean, really, after all, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that kind of influence, that kind of leadership, it changed the world once. And I believe it can change the world again. Imagine if every one of us lived our lives, modeled that leadership, that when we were given authority, when we were given power, when we were given influence, we used it for the benefit and the sake of other people and not our own. It really can change a world. I believe it has the power to do it. And I believe it's what's required of us if we identify with Jesus and call him Savior. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for this incredible text. I thank you for this narrative that has been saved and just um, kept together for thousands and thousands of years that we could read about this incredible man, David, and what he did and his influence. And more than that, God, what he learned that it was your will in your way and in your timing. And regardless how long he has to wait, your promises will come true. I pray that we learn from David, that we learn from Jesus, that in those moments when we realize that all authority, that power, that influence that we have, that we use it, God, that we leverage it for the sake of those around us. Give us the wisdom to see it when it's coming and give us the courage to do it because, God, we know how hard it can be. But I pray we would learn it. And I pray as a church we would model it because that has the ability to change the world. I thank you for it, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.